Join me in your Bibles, if you will, by turning to Luke, Luke chapter 12, verses 49 to 59 is our text for today. Glad to be with you this afternoon, continuing in our study of the gospel according to Luke. And we are in that middle section, if you recall, stretching from chapter 9 and verse 51 where Christ sets his face to go to Jerusalem all the way to chapter 19, where he rides into the city on the cult of a donkey. And with each step, as he gets closer and closer to the city, it seems as if that his focus seems to narrow. The intensity of his resolve seems to strengthen as he looks forward toward the cross and to the joy that was set before him. If you would turn your attention now to the reading of God's word, beginning in Luke chapter 12 and verse 49. I came to cast fire on the earth, and would that it were already kindled. I have a baptism to be baptized with, and how great is my distress until it is accomplished. Do you think that I have come to give peace on earth? No, I tell you, but rather division. For from now on in one house, there will be five divided, three against two and two against three. They will be divided, father against son and son against father, mother against daughter and daughter against mother mother-in-law against her daughter-in-law, and daughter-in-law against mother-in-law. He also said to the crowds, when you see a cloud rising in the west, you say at once a shower is coming, and so it happens. And when you see the south wind blow, you say there will be scorching heat, and it happens. You hypocrites! You know how to interpret the appearance of earth and sky, but why do you not know how to interpret the present time? And why do you not judge for yourselves what is right? As you go with your accuser before the magistrate, make an effort to settle with him on the way, lest he drag you to the judge and the judge hand you over to the officer and the officer put you in prison. I tell you, you will never get out until you have paid the very last penny. This is God's holy and inspired word. Now let us pray together. Our wonderful, gracious, heavenly Father, we lift our hearts up to you this day. Lord, we seek to turn now with your help all of the attention of our minds all of the affection of our hearts, all of the the strength of our wills to the glory of your name. Lord, we, we seek to turn away from the many things that would call our attention away from the one thing that's needful to our souls, even many legitimate things to the one thing that our souls really need, which is to know fellowship with you and to be fed with the spiritual nourishment that comes from your hand. 
We pray that as we open up your word that we would be captivated by your greatness and your glory, by your desires and priorities and interests. Lord, we thank you that we have the ability to come to you today. We thank you for the sovereign grace and redeeming love that was set upon us before the foundation of the world. And that out of your loving kindness, you have drawn us to yourself. Thank you, God, for opening up our eyes to see the desperate need that we had and to also see the perfect provision that has been given in your Son. Lord, we bow our hearts before you. We prostrate our inner man as servants before their master. Lord, we come as loving sons to a father, as worshipers before a great and majestic God, one who does all things well. Grant, Lord, that we would have open ears to hear your word and that as we hear it, we would believe it with all of our hearts and that we would go forth in the obedience of faith. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, I wonder what you would say if someone were to ask you, why did Jesus come into the world? What did Jesus come to earth to do? There are surely any number of legitimate ways that we could answer that kind of question. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. Something we see, right, in the pages of God's word. He came to suffer and die in the place of guilty man. Jesus himself said, sacrifices and offerings you have not desired, but a body you have prepared for me. And burnt offerings and sin offerings you have taken no pleasure. Then I said, behold, I have come to do your will, O God, as it is written of me in the scroll of the book. What was that will? What was the will of God that Jesus submitted himself to do? It was that we might be sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all, that sinners like you and like me could be saved and sanctified, set apart unto God. Any of these things would be true, wonderful, glorious, praiseworthy things to say about why Christ came into the world, things that the believer has great cause to rejoice in. Brothers and sisters, there are other facets as well to the purpose of Christ's coming, some of which may sound so shocking to our ears that we may not be keen to talk or think about them. Some of this may seem so foreign to our understanding of the gospel and to the Christian life that we don't know what to do with it. We may find it to be the case as we look at the text we have in front of us today that Uh, Jesus' words don't fit into our understanding of the Christian life at all, that we don't have a box to put these kinds of things into when it comes to our conception of the Christian life, and that's precisely the point. Jesus is in many ways countering the prevailing view about the reason he came into the world. 
He's challenging his disciples' understanding of what the Christian life holds for those that would follow after him. Three purpose statements that we find in our text today. First, Jesus says that he came to cast fire on the earth. Secondly, he says that he came to undergo a baptism that placed him under great distress. And then thirdly, he came to bring division. We're going to take each one of these in turn, and then we'll consider what kind of response this requires of us as the people of God. Number one, Jesus said, I came to cast fire on the earth. Now, what kind of fire is he talking about here? Well, this takes us back to Luke chapter 3, where John the Baptist comes onto the scene. And if you remember, he says, I baptize you with water. But he who is mightier than I, the strap of whose sandals I am not worthy to untie is coming. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. His winnowing fork is in his hand to clear his threshing floor and to gather the wheat into his barn. But the chaff he will burn with unquenchable fire. And so... The fire that both John the Baptist and the Lord Jesus Christ speak of is a fire of judgment. It's a fire that burns away. It's a a fire that divides. It divides the wheat from the chaff. That started, first of all, with the nation of Israel. Jesus comes onto the scene fulfilling the words of the prophet Malachi from Malachi chapter 3 and verse 2 where it talks about the messenger of the covenant. Uh, There it says in Malachi 3, but who can endure the day of his coming? And who can stand when he appears? For he is like a refiner's fire and like fuller's soap. He will sit as a refiner and purifier of silver and he will purify the sons of Levi and refine them like gold and silver and they will bring in offerings in righteousness to Yahweh. Then the offering of Judah and Jerusalem will be pleasing to Yahweh as in the days of old and as in former years. So here is one of those expressions of the Lord's fire. He comes to refine his own people first. He comes to refine those who claim him. He comes to purify. Judgment, the Bible says, begins at the household of God. And remarkably, there were some within Israel, even priests who turned, they turned in in faith and repentance, they received the promised Messiah, they believed on him, and they worshiped him in spirit and truth. But the Bible also says, if his judgment begins with us, what will be the outcome for those who do not obey the gospel of God? And Malachi even at the very end of the Old Testament, goes on to make the same point. He says, after talking about that refining fire, he says this, then I will draw near to you in judgment. Malachi chapter four and verse one, for behold, the day is coming, burning like an oven, when all the arrogant and all evildoers will be stubble, that the day that is coming shall set them ablaze, says the Lord of hosts so that it will leave them neither root nor branch. But for you who fear my name, the son of righteousness shall rise with healing in his wings. 
you shall go out leaping like calves from the stall. Isn't that a wonderful picture? So the same heat, if you will, the same fire that brings judgment to the wicked brings life and light and joy to the righteous. The appearing of Jesus Christ means one thing for some and another thing for others, and that's true both of his first and his second advent, but it's his second coming that, are, that is particularly in view in the passage that we are looking at today. You remember how Jesus has been grabbing his disciples by the shoulders, as it were, saying, you must be ready. You must be prepared to reckon with God and to give an account when I return. You need to be like men waiting for their master to come home. Now the image changes and he says, when that day comes, it's going to be like a burning oven and Jesus is ready for the day. Jesus is ready for that day. He says, and would that it were already kindled, that 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 oven was already lit. Would that that fire already be set ablaze. Imagine that. Would that the fire of God's wrath and judgment be poured out upon the earth. Now, how can he say that? How can the Jesus we know, gentle Jesus, meek and mild, How can he say such a thing? You see how this does not fit into a Christ of our own imagination. It does not fit into a sentimental, saccharine picture of a Savior. Our Savior, the Savior that we worship, he loves righteousness and he hates wickedness. He is a man of war, he is a warrior. Someone the book of Revelation describes as returning with a sword coming out of his mouth with which to strike down the nations, ruling them with a rod of iron. He will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God the Almighty. On his robe and on his thigh he has a name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords, conquering and to conquer he comes. He loves righteousness and he hates wickedness. And so he longs for the day of his appearing, the great and terrible day of the Lord, the consummation of all things. There's a sense in which he desires that all of these things would already come to pass. And yet God in his mercy has determined not to burn up the chaff with unquenchable fire until as many as possible might be rescued from those flames. Why is it, beloved, that that fire has not already been kindled? Why has the Lord Jesus Christ not already come? The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise, as some count slowness, but is patient toward you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance, but the day of the Lord will come like a thief. And then the heavens will pass away with a roar and the heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved and the earth and the works that are done on it will be exposed. Before that can happen, Christ must first undergo a baptism. 
He says in verse 50, I have a baptism to be baptized with, and how great is my distress until it is accomplished. Brothers and sisters, here we have in mind not a a water baptism in the the ordinary sense of the word, the way we ordinarily think about baptism, but a baptism of sufferings, a baptism of sufferings and death and burial and resurrection. Christ knew what laid ahead of him. He knew the mission that he had been sent to accomplish, and he says here that he was laid under great constraints to see that mission accomplish. How great is my distress until it is accomplished. It's really quite a stirring thing uh, to see the way Christ just kind of pulls back the curtain here and lets us in on his disposition toward the, the will of God, his inward frame of mind toward what he had been sent to do. This heavy burden had been laid upon him, one that would require obedience to the point of death, even death on a cross. And he was taken up with that. He was consumed with that task. He was laid under great distress until that task was accomplished. He says in chapter 18, the book of Luke, see, we are going up to Jerusalem and everything that is written about the Son of Man by the prophets will be accomplished for he will be delivered over to the Gentiles and will be mocked and shamefully treated and spit upon. And after flogging him, they will kill him. And on the third day, he will rise. He knew what this baptism would mean. And for the joy that was set before him, he endured that cross, despising the shame and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Already, at this point, Jesus knows what he would later say to the two on the road to Emmaus, that it was necessary that the Christ should suffer and enter into his glory. There was no other way, and our Savior was under great distress to see God's gracious purposes accomplished for your soul's sake, that you might be one to God. He was under great distress to drink the cup of the Father's wrath, to be nailed to the cross, to suffer and to die, to be laid three days and three nights in the heart of the earth, and then to rise that he might accomplish our salvation. Well, now he reigns and glory until he has put all enemies under his feet. It's with this vision of eschatological fire and judgment and division that Jesus turns to his disciples and he poses this question to them. He says in verse 51, do you think that I have come to give peace on earth? Now again, how would you answer that question? Imagine that we have not already read this passage, if that's possible. Imagine that I was asking you that question at Christmas time, and the lights are all aglow, and everyone is singing carols, and you're thinking about the baby born in Bethlehem. Did Jesus come to bring peace on earth? Well, the answer, as it often is, is it depends. 
what do you mean by peace? In what context or sphere or realm can we expect to know the peace of which we're talking about here? Many of Jesus' listeners would have been familiar with messianic promises from passages like Isaiah chapter 11 and verse 6. The wolf shall dwell with the lamb. The leopard shall lie down with the young goat and the calf and the lion and the fatted calf together and the little child shall lead them. Or Zechariah chapter 9 and verse 11. Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you. Righteous and having salvation is he. Humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. I will cut off the chariot from Ephraim and the war horse from Jerusalem and the battle bow shall be cut off and he shall speak peace to the nations. His rule shall be from sea to sea and from the river to the ends of the earth. So should we expect to know peace as followers of the Lord Jesus Christ? The angels declared at his birth, glory to God in the highest and on earth peace among those with whom he is pleased. Jesus later said to his disciples, I have said these things to you that in me you may have peace. Christ came to preach peace to those who are far off and peace to those who are near. But dear ones, as it pertains to our dealings with the world and with other men and even with our own families, that is another story. It's another story altogether. The work of God in Christ brings peace to God and men. It reconciles the righteous with the unrighteous. But that same redemptive work that propitiates the Father's wrath and reconciles us to him sets us at odds with the world. It divides And Jesus anticipates that there. In fact, he uh, anticipates really is far too weak a word. He declares that this is part of the purpose of his coming, that he came to bring division. This is part and parcel with his coming. He came to bring a sword. Do you think that I have come to bring peace on earth? No, I tell you, but rather division. That word division stands in opposition to the word peace. When Jesus asked that question, do you think that I have come to bring peace on the earth? He's not just taking a poll. He is countering prevailing opinions. We are not to think of the Christian life as one marked by peace with the world. The fact that Jesus brings this question to the forefront helps us to see the the misguided notions that many were laboring under during this time and that many today still continue to labor under, that you can follow Christ and enjoy the approval of the world. Young people, you cannot follow the Lord Jesus Christ and know peace with the world. You cannot know the approval of those who follow another God. You cannot say Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through him and not know the ire of the world. 
Is this what you think? This is a common religious misconception, and it is helped in no way by the presentation of the gospel, so common in our own day that uh, shares nothing of the cost of discipleship, of coming to Christ, taking up your cross and following him. So we have here a word designed to frame our expectations as we live after Jesus in the world. It is one that invites us to look down that path that he trod, bearing shame and scoffing rude, and consider the cost. See the despising and humiliation and hostility that he underwent on our account. See your suffering Savior. See the scorn that he endured. Remember what Simeon said. This child is appointed for the fall and rising of many in Israel and for a sign that is opposed. Now follow him. Follow him with all of your heart. Friends, nothing can be compared to the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. Nothing can be compared to knowing him. But know this as well. Christ came to bring division. And knowing him, loving him, following him will set you at enmity with those that don't bow the knee to him, with those that don't love him. You don't worship the same God. You're not citizens of the same kingdom. You don't have the same agenda or the same purpose in your life. The whole orientation of your life is different. If you were of the world, Jesus said, the world would love you as its own. But because you are not of the, of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. And he spells out here just how close to home uh, this reality can really reach in verse 53. From, for from now on, in one house there will be five divided, three against two, and two against three. They will be divided father against son and son against father, mother against daughter and daughter against mother, mother mother-in-law against daughter-in-law and daughter-in-law against mother-in-law. The background here comes from Micah chapter 7 where the prophet talks about the dangers that the remnant believer is going to face while he is clinging in faith to God. He is going to be treated with contempt by his own family members. He will not be able to trust those that are closest to him. His enemies will be those of his own household. Now, ordinarily speaking, at least in the best case of scenarios, love and fidelity and unity and friendship is seen foremost in the bond that you have with your family. But to unite yourself with Christ is to be part of a spiritual family. It's to be part of a new spiritual family, which in many cases means breaking fellowship with your natural family. Not all relationship, but breaking fellowship. What fellowship hath light with darkness. It means the rejection and opposition and hatred, in many cases, of those nearest and dearest to you. 
There are many of you in this room who have experienced that very thing. You know exactly what this passage is talking about. You have paid and are paying the price that Jesus speaks about here. Well, there is encouragement here, just as we see that Jesus does not put this in fine print for us when he's talking about following him. When he is spelling out for us what it means to be a Christian, he does not say, come to me for blessing and life and forgiveness and then put a little almost indistinguishable asterisk at the end where if you really want to, you can go down to the bottom and read the terms and conditions. Jesus does not do that. In the word of God, he puts the cost of discipleship up front and center and says, here is what you can and must expect. He forewarns them. Matthew 10 and verse 24, Jesus' own words, a disciple is not above his teacher nor a servant above his master. It is enough for the disciple to be like his teacher and the servant like his master. If they have called the master of his house of the house Beelzebul, how much more will they malign those of his household? I hope that you're beginning to see that baked in here is a crisis of decision we are being presented with. Do you recognize it? It goes like this. Will we have Christ or will we have peace with the world? Will our allegiance lie with our earthly ties or with our heavenly Father? Jesus puts it this way in the parallel text from Matthew chapter 10 and verse 37. Whoever loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. And whoever loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. And whoever does not take his cross and follow me is not worthy of me. Whoever finds his life will lose it. And whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. You see the glory there. It is not without glory in following Christ. Finding life, life eternal, life forever in his presence blessings, all mine, with 10,000 beside. Let me say this also to those of you, if you have family members here, uh, particularly those of you who are young, if you have uh, parents who support you, who rejoice in your allegiance to Christ, give thanks to God. Bless his name. Do not Take for granted the grace that you have been given in having a family who loves that you love Christ and wants to see you follow him. If you don't have that though, don't lose heart. In losing your life for his sake, you will find it. You will find it. You may be hated for all for his name's sake, but the one who endures to the end will be saved will be saved. Now, let me direct your attention to the next section in verse 54. You notice how Jesus turns his attention here to the crowds. He said also to the crowds, when you see a cloud rising in the west, you say at once a shower is coming 
And so it happens. And when you see the south wind blowing, you say, there will be scorching heat. And it happens. Anyone living in that part of the world knew that if you saw a cloud rising in the west, that was going to bring rain in from the Mediterranean. If there was a southerly wind coming off the the desert and the Negev, it it was going to be a scorcher. You could read the signs in the weather. Well, Jesus looks at them and he says, you hypocrites, you know how to interpret the appearance of earth and sky, but why do you not know how to interpret the present time? Now, hypocrite in this particular context isn't someone who pretends to be something that they're not. It's not someone either who is just concerned with external righteousness. Here, it speaks more generally of someone who there is a, a point of obvious inconsistency in their lives. In this case, they can, they can read the weather, but they don't have any spiritual discernment. And remember, these are the sign seekers. These are those who are always looking for another sign, that evil and adulterous generation. But they already had all the signs they needed. They already had the ministry of John the Baptist. They already had the announcement of the angels. They already had the innumerable miracles that Jesus had performed in their midst. They had everything that they needed. And Jesus says, why do you not know how to interpret the present time? In other words, the problem here isn't that you don't have enough evidence. There is plenty here to ascertain if you'll just open your eyes to see. And one has to wonder when you look at everything that was laid before them, whether it was a willful blindness on their parts, that they willfully covered their eyes to what God in Christ was doing. I would like to ask you this question, church. What would you do if you were able to interpret the sign of the times? may I submit to you that you would begin to act. You would begin to act now in view of the things signified, in this case, in light of the coming judgment. You would jump into action in view of the fire Christ came to cast on the earth. And that's why this picture of looking to the weather serves us so well. The idea is not that we're just ancient meteorologists, and we are interested in clouds and wind, and we're sitting in an office somewhere. It is more like those of us uh, who live on the Gulf Coast in the middle, middle of hurricane season, and you look out at the weather to make sure you've got everything in order. You read the signs to make sure your estate is ready. You're prepared for what's coming. You take that that idea, and in the same way that your interpretation of the weather would lead to certain action on your part. If there was rain coming, you would get your seed sown, or you'd bring the laundry in off the line. Or if there was a, a, a wind coming, you would go indoors and seek refuge. Here, you interpret the present time, and you take spiritual action. You take spiritual action. 
This is what the Lord is seeking to rouse those who are listening to do. Now, that begs the question, of course, what spiritual action do the signs of the times call for? Look at verse 57. And why do you not judge for yourselves what is right? As you go with your accuser before the magistrate, make an effort to settle with him on the way, lest he drag you to the judge, and the judge hand you over to the officer, and the officer put you in prison. I tell you, you will never get out until you have paid the very last penny. Jesus is borrowing from the Roman system here where instead of being put into indentured servitude to pay off your debt, the debtor would be thrown into prison until whatever he owed could be paid off, usually by extended family members or by selling off of his property. Jesus is saying here, how have you interpreted the signs? Don't you see that you are in debt, spiritually speaking? Are you not awake to the fact that judgment is going to be poured out upon the earth, that you cannot escape being brought into that judgment? Make an effort to settle with your accuser now before that day comes. You see, there is an urgency here. There's an urgency to this admonition that is set before his listeners and that is spoken through the Holy Spirit today to us. Make your peace with God while you still have opportunity before it is too late. Do not wait until the judgment has already come. Now church, how do you settle accounts with God? How do you get the ledger wiped clean when you are so far in the red as sinners? You confess your sin to God. You bring all of your unrighteousness to him. You put your trust in the one who canceled the record of debt that stood against you with its legal demands This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. Jesus said, truly, truly, I say to you, whoever hears my words and believes him who sent me has eternal life. He does not come into judgment, but has passed from death to life. He does not come into judgment. Why? Because the Lord Jesus Christ has received the judgment in your place. Come to him and God will not deal with you as your sins deserve. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we are brought this day once again to our knees as we think about our need of your mercy and your grace. Lord, we humble ourselves before you. God, we acknowledge our need to see ourselves rightly, to acknowledge our wretchedness and forsake 
the sinking sand of our religiosity, our externalism, our vain attempts to gain your favor and to turn in simple faith and repentance, to look to your Son as our all-sufficient trust. Lord, we thank you for the good news of the gospel. We thank you for a perfect Savior, for one who lived a life of perfect obedience and who died a sinner's death in our place. God, we give you glory for him. Thank you, Lord, that he is able to save to the uttermost those that draw near to you through him. Lord, we give you praise. Thank you that the glories of what will be for us overshadow whatever temporal costs we may experience in following you. Lord, for those who have suffered and are suffering in their pursuit of your Son, I pray that you would undergird them with your strength, that you would draw near to them. We beg your mercy on behalf of the lost. Lord, we know that for souls that have been reconciled to you, we have peace with you, but where that has not occurred, every second that goes by is evidence of your kindness and forbearance and patience intended to lead them to repentance. And I pray that no one here would presume upon those riches, that no one would be tempted in any way to delay from turning their hearts to you. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.